0: We we'll your Bibles to Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, as we continue our worship bow before you, Father, to, again, out of respect and honor for who you are and all that you've done. Everything we've done here, Father, is because of you and made possible because of you. We know, Lord, that apart from Christ, we can't even worship you, and our worship won't even be accepted. So, Fathers, we have, again, gathered together because of you, and we have sung hymns, really singing praises to you and singing about you. As we've bowed together in prayer, seeking you, Father, for others and seeking you for ourselves, thanking you for what you've done. As we've read the word, listening to what it has said, as we have confessed our sins, and then, Father, as we have given of our tithes and offerings, Father, we do all these things because of Christ. And Father, now as we continue all of that with our focus on your word, as always, we desire, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, that Father, we would look intently at the book of Lamentations, and we would consider the message that is there, and that it is something that you want us to know and to be aware of. And so we ask, Lord, for your help. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. Father, we know that all these things do bring glory and honor to Christ. And as a result, Father, we do expect to hear from you, to have an answer as we worship and as we study. In Christ's name, amen. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 8 and following. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore, she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. For they have seen her nakedness, she herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, she took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible, she has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the evening has triumphed, the enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. As we've said before, as we've been working our way through this book and covering the background, the author, Jeremiah, makes it clear as to why these things are happening. As again he says in verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously and has become filthy. Again remember that as we work our way through this, that the devastation that is brought about by God is not in response to a few things that have been going on recently in the history of Israel. That this is the culmination of decades, of centuries of disobedience. The disobedience has been... Interrupted a few times by really moments of obedience. And God has blessed and delivered as he said that he would. But they quickly, it seems, revert back to the worshiping of idols and all the various things that go along with that. As I mentioned last week, and we will see it over and over again, that when it comes to the torment that they are experiencing, what is mentioned several times in chapter 1 is there is no comforter. There is no one to comfort. And if nothing else, I I think that at least one of the things that we should draw from that is that when it comes to maybe suffering that we must endure, whether our suffering is brought on because of the sins of others, maybe it's because of sin in our life and some things that need to be addressed, and maybe it's because of the culture we live in, there's this expectation sometimes that we have that, when we call out to God for help, when we call out to God maybe to be comforted, it's not wrong that we expect an answer, but if we don't get an answer within five or six minutes, we're extremely disappointed in God. And there are times, and, I know that, and I'm know and i not saying that we need to like suffering, but we need to recognize that God clearly views suffering as something that is a very important aspect in our life. It is an important ingredient in enabling us to grow as believers. And so there are going to be times, and I don't know what the percentage is of how often this happens, but there are times when the Lord himself is ensuring that at those moments there's no comfort. I believe he wants us to feel very deeply whatever the sorrow and affliction is that we're going through. I believe that deliverance is coming and there will be comfort. But there are times that it's not there. Perhaps so that we can contemplate maybe really the seriousness of sin or maybe the seriousness of our sin. It's not just some minor thing. Because we do tend to think about at least our sins that way. I'll be honest with you, when it comes to You know, I I make an effort to make sure I'm reading the Bible every day. Just so you know, I'm not reading the Bible every day because I'm a pastor. I'm a Christian. I should be reading my Bible every day. But I remember through my entire life where there were big swaths of time when I just just didn't pick up the Bible. And I truly thought, not a big deal. Truly thought that. So if you want to do an experiment, I'm not saying you should do this. But if you think that minor things really may not add up to something major, try just not speaking to your spouse for a month. See how that goes. See how serious things get by just forgetting to say something to your spouse. I don't think you'll make it a month before you hear as to how serious that is. And and all I'm saying is, is that some individuals may think what's the big deal, you know? She knows I love her. She doesn't feel like talking. Sometimes individuals kind of feel that way, so when it comes to this kind of thing, we don't always, I guess, feel or sense really the seriousness of our rebellion against God. And so, when it comes to something like, I ah, just don't read the Bible, or yeah, I, or whatever it happens to be something that we might imagine is small, we think that then the sin is small, the rebelliousness is small in our minds. In our minds, it's not a big deal. And, and what we need to remember is is that it's not. Our judgment is not what counts. It is not my assessment of sin. What is God's assessment of sin? As we read the Bible and as the Spirit of God changes us, one of the many things that's supposed to go on is our understanding and view of sin should change. At least our understanding of our sin. Now, I know it's easy to do this. You know, I, sometimes my wife and I watch the news at night and it gets upsetting to hear the way people talk about things and the way they address issues and the way they don't address issues, and we just you just hear of and you see this craziness and corruption and it's all these things that are going on throughout the world, not just in our country. And it makes us. I mean, you can get angry. We get, we get mad. What are they thinking? How can they live with themselves? So we just kind of it goes on and on with all these things that we think. So we are. We're pretty adept at evaluating the sins and the consequences of others and what it means. But we don't view ourselves that way. We, we, we give ourselves a break all, almost all the time. And remember that what, God, what counts to God is not our ability to assess someone else's sin. I think what's important to God is our ability to, to assess our own sin and do it correctly. And so then there are times in the, in the suffering it's not just putting up with the suffering. Maybe it, there needs to be that, that, that depth, that groaning, where there, there's just no comfort and there's no relief. There's no immediate relief in sight. That's really hard to deal with because we live in a culture where we want to somehow find fault with God because there has been no comfort. You know, for, whether we've been suffering for hours or maybe it's been days, but we find, we'll find fault with God in a minute. And I hear it sometimes, Grant, oftentimes it's, I will say it's an unbeliever who, if you ever hear me say that someone's God-fearing, that means I'm not saying they're a Christian. God-fearing is kind of a, a combination of a superstitious, respectful view concerning some kind of deity, whatever they imagine God to be. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. There's a lot of people in our society that are God-fearing. And those individuals sometimes will quickly express their disappointment in God. As if God has failed, if God has done wrong, if God is in error. They won't say it that way, but the accusation is there. And we need to be careful that we don't go there. Jerusalem's great sinning has resulted in her becoming unclean and despised like an overexposed woman. In the ancient world, to have your body exposed, to, to be exposed, to be naked... Uh, especially your private parts, that was just an absolute utter disgrace. There were certain things that were big. So you, when you wanted to shame an individual or when a nation wanted to shame somebody, you would strip them, out, strip them down to where they, were, they had no clothes. If you, if you were enslaving a, a people, you would strip them and put them in, in chains and having them walk naked to wherever you were going. And, and the whole idea was to shame them and to disgrace them and to humble them. And so that's the, that's the wording. The Hebrew language is really very expressive and very colorful. And so, you know, sometimes in, in our minds, you know, we're like, oh, don't say it like that. You know, well, we need to say it like that because I believe that's exactly how God intends it to be said so that we, again, really have that sense of what's taking place. The catastrophe that overtook Jerusalem, again, was not an action of a heartless God against an innocent people. Jerusalem brought down her own destruction because of her sin. Jerusalem was reaping what she had sown. When she turned from God to pursue her own idolatrous ways, she did not consider her future. And that's why we need to, you know, sometimes, I'm sure you may have experienced it, I know I did, oftentimes when I got in trouble when I was growing up, my dad would ask the question, what were you thinking? And, you know, what was I thinking when I did it? What did I think was going to happen? Did I consider the consequences? And usually the answer to all of those was an apparent, I wasn't thinking, But here's the idea is they weren't thinking. They were not looking at the end of things. Jerusalem here, and he points this out, and it's a big deal with Jerusalem. Jerusalem saw her temple become desecrated. The pagan nations were basically, the armies, they were, you know, Babylonian armies marching into the temple, and they were basically robbing it of everything in there. And you know when you read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of gold, a lot of precious garments that are in the temple, and all that was being taken you see, what happened was, is many of the people in Jerusalem, this is what they were thinking. They really were thinking this. They were thinking that because the temple was there in Jerusalem, they were secure. No matter how angry God got, because it was his temple, surely he won't destroy this place. Of course, they were wrong. They viewed their temple almost as a giant talisman or a good luck charm. As long as God's house was there, they were safe. He might let other places be destroyed but certainly not his own house and when that place was devastated they were stunned probably waking up to the reality that god takes these things very seriously they learned too late that god does not hold stones in higher regard than obedience disobedience brings destruction and when we say disobedience brings destruction it's not only limited to physical destruction but that was going on But our disobedience to God brings destruction. It brings destruction in your your relationships with others. It can bring destruction into your home. It can destroy your family. It can destroy a lot of things. Again, remember that that when God gives us commands, when he gives us imperatives, it's not because God just wants to be the boss. These are all for our benefit. All carefully crafted by the wisest, uh, all-knowing God who knows what is best in every way, has designed these things for us and for our flourishing. Deuteronomy 28, I mean, Deuteronomy 32, verses twenty and 29 says, For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. So again, the idea there is that they need to, they needed to be thinking about what all of this would mean, and they had the, the means to do so because God had sent so many prophets before explaining what was going to happen. The book of Deuteronomy says what's going to happen. When he gave the law, he said, if you obey, this will happen. If you disobey, this is what's going to happen. And as we pointed out in the chart that you were given several weeks ago, the comparison between Deuteronomy chapter 28 and what's going on in the book of Lamentations is unbelievable. It's right, almost right down to the letter. All the things that God said was going to do is now happening to them after this continue, continued reign of disobedience. If they, were wise, if they were wise, they would understand, basically, that apostasy from the Lord brings heavy punishment afterwards. Apostasy from the Lord brings heavy punishment. They would have been thinking of their end. The evil issue... Uh, of of continued resistance to God's commands is going to be dealt with. Again, in verse 10, he says, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations under her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. I want you to know that when it comes to precious things, I don't think it's limited to just the items that are in the temple, because all of their whole life is being disrupted. This is not where the enemy comes in and, you know, tears down the walls of the city, takes some people captive, you know, destroys the temple and leaves. No, everything that, that they are connected with in life is destroyed. So if they were to come into Savannah, all the places you like to go, you like to go to Forsyth Park when it's the jazz festival and hear music? I know I do. Gone. Not going to do that anymore. You like to go out into the river. You like to go, you know, use maybe it's a community pier to launch your boats so you and go fishing. It's not there anymore. It's gone. You're not allowed to do that anymore. The parks where you used to gather, the botanical gardens, or maybe wherever it happened, gone. Everything in life destroyed. Everything you consider precious, gone. The, the, the devastation they're experiencing is complete. And it's all because of their rebellious, rebelliousness against God. And again, it can appear maybe some are feeling this way i know that some an outsider not familiar with the god of the bible reading this can think that god is being overly harsh but again that's because we have a misunderstanding we have misevaluated the seriousness of sin as well as how patient god has been you know remember this you know that in the end of all things there is a judgment you know that judgment is very very real we we can use the word that in the end the judgment of god will be harsh but it's not harsh in the sense of being unfair it's exacting justice if there's anything to be afraid of it's exacting justice you you do not don't ever ask anyone much less god to treat you with justice that is a huge mistake i only want mercy from god i i do not want justice because if I get justice, I get exactly what I deserve. Remember, when, if, you go, if you've ever done a study or heard a study of the details of the pain and the suffering that Jesus Christ went through, you need to remind yourself that, that that what we're seeing there embodied and what he had to go through is how God feels and rightly punishes sin. When we say that Jesus died in our place, he took our punishment. That is what is supposed to be happening to me, is that? And that's and and he took that for me. He took my place, so I would not have to endure that. Verse eleven of chapter one of Lamentation says, "All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised." And so, because of her sin, Jerusalem is now experiencing famine. During and after the siege, food was scarce. People were forced to barter their treasures for food and to keep themselves alive. I won't go into detail, as I mentioned before, some of the very gross things that people did. But when there is a desperation of hunger, people will do the unthinkable. And it it is. It's very gross. In contrast to what has been written so far and what we've read only in chapter 1, what you need to remember is that uh, in the first half of the lament, we have this picture of 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 someone who's going through this and they're kind of looking outside, you know, looking at at what's happening around them. But then beginning in verse 10, there's a a call. Jerusalem is calling to people who had observed her desolation. A, A call. She's calling out to God. And so if you look at verse 12, it says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. So as they're going through this experience, I don't even ever notice this before, Uh, but there are times when, uh, let's say there's been, and this happens on the highway, there's been a big accident, you know, snarls, traffic, and as people go by, we we do the normal thing. Number one, we slow down just because everyone else is slowing down and there may be a narrow way to get through. We're all looking to see what happened. It's just curiosity. And there are times uh, where where the individuals that are involved in the accident, and, and let's say they're grieving some, because of some horrible things that have happened to people they love and you see all these people you don't know them and they're, and they're gawking they're looking at their and it, there's an anger that arises within you because they're, because they're it's almost like you see them as individuals who are looking at what's going on but, but they don't really care they're just looking like you like you watch a circus act and so that's angry. and they may and they'll start yelling at you. What, do you what are you looking at what's wrong with you and so, so the idea is, is that your something is so great, it's like you want some kind of a release out of that, and then you become more aware of your surroundings, and you look at these individuals who are looking, but they're not looking with any compassion. They're not looking with, with, with trying to help in any way. And so there's a greater anger. And so that's what's being expressed here in verse 12. Everybody who's going by and looking at us, ha- have you had enough? You know, no one's helping us in all of this. We're, we're, we're desperate for food, we're desperate for help. Have you seen anyone else in the kind of sorrow we're we're experiencing? I mean, you just lash out. And that's, that's the depth of what they're experiencing here. They don't care who hears them or who sees them anymore. And then, of course, he says, From on high, speaking of God, he set fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net from my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. As I mentioned last week, and, I, and I, it was a quote that I came across that I thought was really impactful in the way that I was just thinking about all of this, and one that we need to think about, and again, that's this. Here he talks about that the Lord has inflicted this. That's what he says in verse 12, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. That, that throughout this book, remember that, that King Nebuchadnezzar isn't mentioned. There's no complaining about the Babylonian army, though they are the ones that are bringing all this about. What we need to be delivered from, what they need to be delivered from is God. You know, we, it's not that we're, it's not wrong for us to, even when we present the gospel to people, it's not wrong for us to say that they'll be delivered from hell, they'll be delivered from their sin, they'll be delivered from judgment. That's all true. But maybe they've heard that before, but no one thinks about it in this way. Imagine, and I don't know how, I don't know how anybody would respond. You know, I, I, and I don't wanna use it for novelty's sake, I wanna use it because I want people to understand the seriousness of where they are. But I wonder how people respond when you say to them, if they say, oh, so you believe in a final judgment, we need to be delivered from judgment, just say, no, I, I think we need to be delivered from God. It's a new way of thinking about it. Because who's behind all of that? Who is it that brings judgment? It's God. I need to be delivered from God. I need to be delivered from God's justice. This is what God. So it's not a complaining where there's an accusation look at what God did to me, I'm innocent. No, look at what's happened to me. This is God's fierce anger. This is God's righteous judgment. And so Jerusalem is bewailing. The lack of concern that her desolate condition has drawn from onlookers in this expression of grief. The pain was uniquely great because the Lord had poured out his wrath on her. It's the same as the pain experienced by a child when a parent disciplines them. It's unique and worse Because it comes from a loving parent who it seems for the moment has turned on them. That is why sometimes our kids react so strongly when we punish them. Is because there's all this stuff going on. Because it's unexpected from us in a sense. Jeremiah continues in verse 14. It says, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So God's attack against them, and that's what this is. God's attack was like binding Jerusalem's sins into a yoke, and that yoke was placed over her neck. The yoke that tied two draft animals together for pulling heavy loads. The heavy wooden crossbeam of the yoke referred metaphorically to the slavery or the burden or the hardship that someone had to bear. So Jerusalem's sins produced the yoke of judgment under which she was bound to serve Babylon. God sapped her strength and turned her over to her enemies. So you can see the, the detail of this description. Again, as we mentioned before, and we'll mention it again in a few moments, as sometimes we we, we can acknowledge quickly that there's judgment for sin. We want to move on quickly to the love of God. It's not, not wrong for us to, to want to talk about the love of God and to, and to express the love of God. And we definitely don't want to be happy when we're talking about the judgment of God. That sometimes, that can be a mistake. It is a mistake. For If you ever talk to someone about being judged by God for their sin, or maybe you're in a, a group discussion and you're talking about some group you know, maybe it's some group that to you is hideous. Maybe it's, it's those involved in the gay movement or the pro, pro-choice movement or whatever. And they are in sin. But sometimes we're almost gleeful when we talk about how their day is coming. That should bring sadness to us. We, it, and, you know, again, it's, it's because of our fallen condition. Remember it tells us in the book of Ezekiel, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And every time I think about that verse, it just reminds me of how far I am from the heart of God because I take pleasure in the death of some wicked. There are some wicked people, when they die, I'm happy. I'm glad they're getting what's coming to them because my heart is not like God's. Having a heart of God doesn't mean that you do not bring about or recognize that justice needs to be done. But we don't take a hidden pleasure in that. And I do, I want God to change my heart. I do want to be grieved when those that are very, very wicked suffer and die and face judgment. It's hard to do that. It's very hard. Lamentations, verses 16 through 17. He says, for these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. So two more times it's brought up. A comforter is far away from me. There is none to comfort. And of course, the only one you can turn to here is the Lord. Again, Jerusalem's explanation of God's judgment to those passing by ended in this cry of tragic despair. In a scene of touching sadness, Jeremiah pictures Jerusalem as a broken, weeping widow, stretching out her hands to anyone who would give aid and comfort. I don't know if you've ever seen, and it, maybe you have, whether it's a documentary or whether it's uh, something on the news where they're they're showing a video from those countries where people are going through great tragedy, like when Turkey experienced uh, the, the suffering of, of all the earthquakes. Or when you just look at those who are suffering hunger in various places in Africa and India, you'll see people on the side of the road where they're just they're weeping and they're crying. And as people pass by, they're, they're reaching out their hands. There's, they, they can't move. They can't do anything because their situation is so desperate. And that's the picture here of Jerusalem. And it's not because of famine or because of an earthquake. It's because of God, which is because of their disobedience and their refusal to follow what God has said. Again, no one is near to comfort. There was no one at all to comfort them. The city was destitute and despised. The neighbors to whom Jerusalem had turned to for help were now her enemies, her foes. They viewed her as being unclean and they weren't going to to come by and help her. In fact, again, the word that's used here uh, in the Hebrew language is, uh, is a word that's used for the ceremonial impurity that's associated with a woman uh, is having her menstrual cycle. That's kind of the idea that's there. Is they're just, ah, oh, just stay away from me. They want to be associated with that individual. And in this case, with Jerusalem. So verses 18 and 19, our last two verses of the day. It says, the Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. Just stop right there. Jeremiah clearly is is a man who understands God. He's he's come to the the right conclusion. This is the conclusion that we need to come to at times. The Lord is right. Period. I have rebelled against his word. We sometimes forget the basic aspect of the gospel presentation. When we we point out to individuals Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. What do those verses say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what does that mean? For the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say for the wages of some sin is death. It's the wages of sin is death. That's Genesis to Revelation. It's consistent. And we sometimes forget that. Because as believers, our sins are forgiven. We think of our sins as being really not all that a big deal. And because Christ has already forgiven us, we just kind of think lightly of them. And I'm not saying that you should mope all day long. I'm not saying that you should, you know, kind of drag your knuckles on the ground and say, woe is me, I'm only a worm and I'm not allowed to be happy for even a moment because that's not the Christian life that God wants us to live. We, are, we can be and we should be joyful and happy. At the same time, we can still take our sin very seriously and be deeply grieved by our sins. And God is pleased with us when we do that. And I believe that often, because I can't say it's always, but often when we learn that and we, ex- and we embrace that view of our sin and we truly have that sense, there is so much of God's discipline that will be spared. Much of it we will be spared. But nonetheless, we go on. God is righteous. Because he is righteous, he does not allow sin to continue unchecked. So again, the verses, the Lord is right for I have rebelled against his word, but hear all you peoples and see my suffering, my young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. And so the call is, look at Jerusalem. She's being held up as an example of what God will do to those who are disobedient and worship idols. And so Jerusalem looks and says, my men are gone, my women are gone, my strong men are gone, my priests and my elders, they have perished, and people are seeking desperately for food. Sin exacts a horrible price from those who enjoy its temporary pleasures. Jerusalem abandoned her God to experience those pleasures. Francis Schaeffer said this, The only reason men were in the place where they were in the days of Jeremiah or are in our own post-Christian world is they have turned away from the propositional revelation of God. And as such, they are under the moral judgment of God. Sometimes we actually are guilty of the same thing that some non-believers are guilty of, is we do not want to accept the fact that God is angry with sin. God God is angry with sin. The one who brings, again, the punishment is the only one we can turn to. Again, an illustration from from parenting. When our kids are really, really young, there are times when, let's say, they have something very grievous. We would say they're in big trouble. They really feel that you are severely disappointed in them. And there's, there's, there's weeping. We are the ones that are bringing judgment on them for what they've done. Who do they reach out to? You. In that moment, those little arms, those little hands, they desperately want you to pick them up and to hold them. Because they want to make amends, they want it to be right. They don't want you to be angry with them anymore. The same thing with man when it comes to God. We have to accept the fact that God is angry with sin. But the scripture also says that a broken and contrite heart, God will never turn away. You see, we these things can be fixed; they can be addressed in our life. It doesn't mean that instantly suffering may end. It doesn't mean that instantly the temple will be rebuilt. It doesn't mean that. Ah, but there'll be comfort. There will be comfort. There will be deliverance. Because we don't want to accept the fact that God is angry with sin, and said we. Uh, the fact that God is love is played for all it's worth. And again, I agree that God is love. And the church certainly needs to learn to take the love of God into the marketplace of life. We need to do a better job of expressing the love of God ourselves to others. But we've often failed to do that. And maybe it's led to an overemphasis on the love of God in our generation. But remember, God is all of these things. God is righteous, God is holy. God is just at what He does. God must must punish sin. But because of who He is, in one sense, we can say, God must love. And He's made that way for us. They say so we carry this fantastic message that we are to share with whoever we meet all the time. But we also need to live in light of the gospel ourselves and receive not only the comfort that God gives us for all the wrong that we've done, but that also means that there's a continual changing in our heart, that we begin to hate and loathe not only the things that we have done but perhaps the things that we're doing now and that is the message that god wants us to understand from these things we want to believe in the whole of god the whole counsel of god i don't only accept the love of god i accept everything about god god is holy just and right in all that he does he treats me better than i deserve to be treated i love him because he first loved me he has taught me the way he is showing me the way and he is striving with me in great patience He's also warned me about many things. And I want to take those warnings very seriously because it's human nature not to. And I want you to be spared the same fate that can fall on so many others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for the message of lamentations. Lord, there can be a heaviness with this as we contemplate what is here. We are grateful, Lord, that this is a short book because we can only handle so much of this. But, Father, nonetheless, we pray that you would help us to absorb the truth that's here. We pray, Lord, that it would sink deep into our hearts and minds. Not, Lord, that we may again run around and, and point out to others and speak with great aggressiveness how their sin will bring judgment. But, Father, we will have a great sense of your discipline and judgment on us if we don't deal with our sin. That, Father, our hearts may be changed and that when we deliver the message of Christ, we will do so with great compassion and great love. Again, Father, we thank you, Lord, for your consistency. (coughs) We thank you, Father, for loving us and delivering us from your wrath. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.